Welcome to the fourth podcast in this series, Parliament Explained. I'm Mira Sayal, and in this series I'm exploring exactly what happens in Parliament. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the programme on your podcast app so that it downloads automatically every Monday. Last time we heard how members of the Commons and Lords can use questions and debates to check and challenge the work of the government. Today, we're going to talk about a third tool of parliamentary scrutiny, select committees. We'll find out how these committees work both in the Commons and the Lords, and why they're considered to be one of the most effective methods for holding the government to account and, ultimately, influencing their decisions. Select committees are appointed by each house to perform a particular task of scrutiny on its behalf and to report back. This task might be to investigate a specific issue in depth, examine a new proposal in detail or monitor the work of a particular government department closely. Select committees often ask experts from outside Parliament and members of the wider public like us to help them in their work by sending in their views or experiences. And because they're made up of members from across the political parties, their recommendations can't easily be dismissed by the government. Select committees usually have between 8 and 15 members and these are all drawn from the backbenches. They meet in committee rooms rather than in the chamber. Their members come from across the different political parties and in the House of Lords, those with no party affiliation too. As well as the select committees in each house, there are a number of joint committees made up of both MPs and members of the House of Lords. Select committees have the power to call in members of Parliament, civil servants and experts for questioning and to demand information from the government. Their findings are published in a report and the government is expected to respond to any recommendations that are made. In the House of Lords, select committee reports usually get a debate in the chamber or in grand committee, which takes place in another room in the House of Lords. As we heard last time, a government minister or spokesperson has to answer the points raised. In a moment, we'll hear about the impact of a recent select committee inquiry in the House of Commons. But first... Let's look at select committees in the Lords. Could I perhaps open and allow you to, to, to expand on what my specific questions are? But we have had the Prime Minister's statement last week, which has moved things on in one sense. We've also had a debate in the House of Commons, which may or may not have moved things on. Could you perhaps start by telling us how you now see the sequence of events in the terms of both the period between now and uh, the triggering of uh, Article 50, but more importantly, after the triggering of Article 50. This is, as you say, extremely complicated. There are, in my mind, there are five dimensions that we're operating on. It makes the Shakespeare College question look relatively like a GCSE question. There are two dimensions which are related to Article 50. The first is the exit negotiation, and the second being the negotiation over our new relationship. Select committee investigations in the House of Lords look into public policy, proposed laws and government activity. They take advantage of their members' professional experience and expertise to carry out investigative, subject-focused work. Whereas Commons committees generally focus on individual government departments, Lords committees focus on broader, cross-cutting issues. Think of the Commons committees as vertical and the Lords as horizontal. Permanent Lord Select Committees are based around six themes. The European Union Committee, which considers UK government policy in respect of the EU, 
It's made up of seven subcommittees, each looking in detail at a different aspect of the UK's relationship within the EU. They are now conducting linked inquiries into the Brexit process. The Science and Technology Committee, which investigates policies that are or ought to be informed by scientific research as well as technological challenges and opportunities. The Communications Committee, which looks at the public policy related to the media and creative industries. The Constitution Committee, which among other things examines the constitutional implications of all public bills brought before the House of Lords. The Economic Affairs Committee, which investigates current economic issues and reviews the performance of the economy. and. The International Relations Committee, which considers the UK's foreign relations, hearing evidence from ministers, officials and international experts. In addition to these permanent committees, one-off or ad hoc committees are also appointed each year, whose work is generally completed within one parliamentary session. This allows the House of Lords to investigate and scrutinise issues that aren't in the remit of any of the permanent committees and provides an opportunity to examine and respond to current pressing issues. Recent ad hoc committees have investigated issues ranging from the charity sector to financial exclusion. We're going to hear now about the work of one of these shorter term ad hoc committees, which was appointed in 2015 to investigate the issue of social mobility and the transition from school to work. Here's the chair of that committee, the Right Honourable the Baroness Corston. Well, it was, it was called the Social Mobility Committee, but actually we were looking specifically at what happens when young people move from school to work. Because there's a notion in this country that people just do A-levels and they go to university because that seems to be the thing to do. But we discovered that 53% of young people, the majority, don't choose that route and they are overlooked and left behind. And who sat on the committee? Well, it was a huge and impressive range of expertise. We had a former Secretary of State for Education. We had a very celebrated doctor. We had somebody who had been the deputy for the Connections Youth Service. We had people who'd had a long career in public service in Northern Ireland. We had a former Olympic athlete. I mean, you know, it was, it was a wonderful committee to chair, full of a diverse range of experiences, which is what you want on a select committee. Well, we tried very hard to reach the people who this report covered. So initially I did a video clip and we sought the views of young people. And I'm very proud of the fact that over 670 young people responded to that request, telling us about their experiences and some of it made quite harrowing reading. We held focus groups with young people in London and in Derby, um, people with very diverse experiences and diverse backgrounds. We sought written evidence from a bewildering array of people in this country and in continental Europe. And we took oral evidence from the Secretary of State, the Minister for Skills, local authorities, organisations that um, provide life skills education, Renowned academics in the sector were all asked to submit evidence either in person or in writing. And what did you find out? We found that the route from O-levels to, um, as I used to call them, GCSEs to uh, A-levels to university is understood. And a lot of schools, most schools, benefit financially if that's what young people do. 
and a lot of people do it because they think they should. A majority find that this emphasis on academic education, to the exclusion of all else, doesn't really fit them for the world of work which they think they might want to choose. The qualification system for these people is bewildering, to say the least. They don't know what VTECs are, for example. I didn't. But there's a huge range of these qualifications, which employers then don't understand. So one needs to ask, what was the value? We felt very strongly that given the fact that for a lot of people a technical and vocational education would help them prepare for the world of work, the national curriculum should finish at 14 and those who want to go on to the usual A-level and university course could continue with their academic education and others could have a combination of academics, core subjects and vocational preparation. So we said that these people aren't properly served in Whitehall that the responsibilities are spread between different departments, that there should be one cabinet minister who has overall responsibility for this subject, this sector, there should be annual reports to parliament, and that we really felt that the funding of education for people who do a vocational course um, is scandalously lower than that for people who go to university, and that is simply unfair. At the time, I, I think some of us felt strongly that the government response was not what it might have been, but it has to be said that then when we actually had a debate on the floor of the House of Lords on the 20th of December last, the minister responding for the government was much more fulsome in terms of responding to the specific points we'd made. I would love to feel that all young people feel they have a place in the sun. I was particularly affected by the story of one young man who knew he wanted to be a furniture maker. And he knew that a purely academic education was what he saw was wasting his time. And he left school at 16, which meant after 16 he got no education in the course subjects. He found a course on his own in a college, an FE college to learn furniture making. It was two days a week. Now, wouldn't it have been great if he could have had those two days a week making furniture and the other three days continuing his core education? And it was those kind of experiences that made me feel quite energized in, in taking part in this very valuable select committee. Following the government's response, members of the Lords, including Baroness Corston and other members of the committee, debated the findings of the report in the Lord's Chamber. The issues here are simple. Currently, this is an area of not so much spend or attention in schools. Indeed, we heard from Sir Michael Wilshaw of Ofsted that careers advice does not form a core part of their grading of schools. Evidence suggested that many head off to university and then discover after a short period that the academic route is not for them. Someone in these circumstances suffers a reversal that is damaging to morale, and at the same time will have run up, no doubt, a huge student loan debt. This causes loss to the Exchequer, as clearly at least some of these loans will never be repaid, and there is a natural likelihood of a government cost in relaunching a career. Now we know about the permanent and ad hoc committees in the House of Lords, let's hear about how House of Commons select committees work. First, we'll meet Laura Daniels, Senior Committee Specialist for the Commons Health Select Committee. In the House of Commons, specific departmental select committees monitor each government department and they scrutinise three aspects of a department, which are the spending and the policy and the administration. 
They're made entirely of backbenchers. Departmental committees have a minimum of 11 members and they agree and identify specific lines of inquiry. So during an inquiry, the committee requests information from government ministers and their officials, and we put out what's called a call for written evidence from specialists in the field. And members of the public with relevant experience are also very welcome to contribute. Written evidence isn't actually that formal. They're not asking for legal documents. It can be as simple as a short note. The committee then takes oral evidence where witnesses are invited in to answer MPs' questions in the House of Commons. Nearly all evidence is given in public and you can attend live committee meetings or you can watch or listen on parliamentlive.tv. So in October 2016, two new select committees were created to scrutinise the work of new government departments. These are the International Trade Committee and the Committee on Exiting the European Union. The key strength of select committees is that they're cross-parties. The chairs and the members come from the back benches. They hopefully agree consensus on an issue. This presents government with recommendations agreed by members from across the House. And the recommendations are firmly based on the evidence that the committee's heard. So, as well as departmental select committees, there are cross-cutting committees. These look at government performance across all the departments according to one specific criteria. So, for example, the Public Accounts Committee looks at value for money in government spending across the whole of the government. The Environmental Audit Committee monitors the impact of government decisions on the environment. So departmental committees look vertically at the work of a single department and its ministers, and cross-cutting committees look horizontally across several departments. They look at the themes and actions which affect them all. And departmental committees can also work together on specific issues by doing a joint inquiry. So select committee findings are reported to the House of Commons. They're also printed as reports and published on the Parliament website. And the government has 60 days in which it has to make a response. Let's have a look at an example of what sort of change can happen as a result of a select committee report. In November 2015, the House of Commons Health Committee that Laura works for published their report entitled Childhood Obesity, Brave and Bold Action. The report outlined the scale and consequences of childhood obesity in the UK and demanded bold and urgent action from the government. But the origins of this report start further back. Following the general election in May 2015, new select committees were appointed and the first inquiry that the Health Select Committee decided to do was childhood obesity. There were a few reasons why the committee was interested in looking at this area. Campaigners had been pushing for a tax on sugary drinks since 2013. Uh, there was a major review of the scientific evidence for reducing sugar intake, also expected from Public Health England, which is one of the government's advisory bodies. And the committee really wanted to give people a chance to discuss this in public and hear about the issues before the government published its own strategy on how to deal with childhood obesity. Interestingly, at the same time as we were beginning our inquiry, the TV chef Jamie Oliver launched a parliamentary petition to support a sugary drinks tax, which got something like 150,000 signatures. This was then considered for debate by the Petitions Committee. The Petitions Committee put the issue of a sugar tax to the government, who responded initially by saying that they had no plans to introduce one. But that wasn't to be the end of the story. So the Petitions Committee referred it to us, to the House of Commons Health Committee. We took evidence around the area of childhood obesity, we took evidence from um, academic experts, from food and drink industry, from campaigners, and of course we also invited Jamie Oliver to talk about his petition. We heard that childhood obesity is a really complex problem and that actions needed on lots of fronts to make a difference. 
we are definitely in a time where, you know, we have had two, three generations where many mums and dads who are working very, very hard haven't been taught how to cook or about food at school or at home. So we have some catching up to do. The committee issued a series of recommendations, including... Tougher controls on the promotion and marketing of unhealthy food and drinks. Better labelling of sugar in packaging. Controls on the price promotions of sugary food and drinks in shops and attacks on sugary drinks. So, faced with these recommendations, the government were under considerable pressure to act. And in his budget statement in March 2016, the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, made this commitment. Five-year-old children are consuming their body weight in sugar every year. Experts predict that within a generation, over half of all boys and 70% of girls could be overweight or obese. One of the biggest contributors to childhood obesity is sugary drinks. So today I can announce that we will introduce a new sugar levy on the soft drinks industry. And let me explain how it will work. It will be levied on the companies... It will be introduced in two years' time. The OBR estimates that this levy will raise £520 million. And this is tied directly to the second thing we're going to do today to help children's health and well-being. We're going to use the money from this new levy to double the amount of funding we dedicate to sports in every primary school. Following that, a 10-year plan was drawn up by the government to reduce the rate of childhood obesity. This plan includes making healthier food options available to children throughout public sector services, including schools, supporting businesses to make their products healthier, clearer labelling on food packaging and promoting physical activity in children. So this example shows how a select committee can help prompt the government to rethink its priorities. And in this case, it could make a difference to the health of children and families across the UK. We've explored how select committees in the House of Commons and the House of Lords shadow our government departments or look at wider issues that cut across several departments. What do you think of this system? Yes, I think select committees work very well. I've watched them on occasions and um, you do get cross-party cooperation and the questions are intelligent and they do hold people to account and it's interesting to watch people squirm. I didn't know that I could contribute to select committees. I didn't know it was even a thing. I think it's a really great system because I think sometimes the government just have this hat on and they don't think of the little things that are bubbling under. So it's great to have a committee who are pushing those things to get through. I like that they're made up of members of different political parties. I think that way it means that they're fair. it's good to have somebody keeping the government in check um, using facts and research rather than I imagine coming at it from a party point of view. You've got select committees working on specific issues. I think it's really important and and really good that it's streamlined that way. It's good to know there are ad hoc committees because current affairs and public issues are always popping up. They hold a vital role, I think, in democracy and I'm very impressed by select committees. I think they're a good constitutional democratic tool. We've heard examples of where select committees have used information gathered from the public and from experts to produce robust recommendations that have influenced the government's decisions. If you'd like to hear Parliament in Action, you can find out more about select committees, including how to submit evidence to an inquiry, by visiting www.parliament.uk. You can also watch select committee proceedings at www.parliamentlive.tv. If you have a specific question about select committees, you can call the House of Commons Inquiry Office for free on 0800 112 4272 
or the House of Lords Inquiry Service on 0800 223 0855, which is also free. Callers with a text phone can talk through text relay by calling 18001 followed by either of those relevant full numbers. Thanks for listening to Parliament Explained and I hope you've enjoyed the programme. And to make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the programme on your podcast app so that it downloads automatically every Monday. Next time, we'll be looking at how the laws that affect our everyday lives are made and changed and how we can all play a part in that process. I'm Mira Sayal and I'll catch you then.